Welcome to The Power of Rhythm, a podcast with your host, Reinhard Flattischler, founder of Mega Drums, Takatina Symphonic, and a worldwide network of groundbreaking rhythm training. This podcast will offer you an incredible diversity of voices around the one thing that connects us all. Rhythm. Welcome to episode 9 of my podcast. And today we're going to cross many borders between acting, playing, performing and teaching. And all of this because my guest today is a true multi-talent. She has Croatian roots but lives in Melbourne, Australia and her spectrum spans from acting to composing, from performing to teaching and onwards to researching. She has been touring with the original founding group of Stomp and she got invited to compose for Cirque du Soleil. And she has formed, led and composed for many bands, one of them the true Balkan-inspired Barefoot Orchestra Band. Welcome, Tanya Bosak. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, really great to have you here and also have the female voice on my podcast, which I will ensue the whole time. So we have the angle of rhythm from both sides. Now, let's right go to it. The Barefoot Orchestra Band, uh, that term gets my attention, but also <laughs> has some head scratching. What does that mean, Barefoot Orchestra? Well, the, the Barefoot Orchestra, the name itself came from my surname, actually, because Bosak in Croatian, that word actually means barefoot, bosa, or it's a derivative of barefoot, the word in Croatian. So it was the perfect name for that ensemble. So let's go actually back all the way to the roots. Where did your musical journey start and what have been the early stages of your musical evolution? I really feel like the real beginnings were with my family, with my father in particular, but also family members, family gatherings. There was always music around in our family, played live with dancing and singing. So it was always a part of my upbringing and it was quite normal. It was not special. It was just something we did in social gatherings. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I never really pursued or had the interest to be a musician. I was more focused on performance or acting and theatre and film and television. And that was my real serious trajectory. That's where I was really going. And it wasn't until later it, it just kept becoming clearer and clearer as I immersed in performance that music was a very natural driving force that was kind of really unconsciously deeply inside me. 
but I had no clue that that was where I would end up. So it was very surprising for me, but didn't really feel like that was going to be my direction. Did you grow up in Croatia or Melbourne? In Melbourne, yeah. Okay, so in Melbourne, there was this, you know, actually musical atmosphere in your house. That's uh, fantastic. And was yeah, and, it, you know, the strongest memories I have as a child were in Laylaw, which is this area in Melbourne where a lot of migrants were moving to in the 50s and 60s and my parents built a house there and occasionally there would be blackouts, no electricity. So we would light candles and my father would play a piano accordion and we would just dance in the kitchen as a family with three girls and my dad and mum. And I have very strong memories of those, those times. How actually did you then come into acting? So it's that spectrum that I'm interested. Now you grew up in a musical way that we just experienced. Mm. Now how do you go from there to acting? Yeah, I think I was a very very playful child but also very insular so I was playing on my own a lot of the time my parents were working in two or three jobs my sisters were busy at school and a bit older than me and I kept myself busy in this state of creating and playing and I was literally writing plays and by the time I went to primary school I was directing plays and I was constantly creating I don't know where that came from but there was a real natural tendency to want to lead performance or direct performance or create performance and I I was quite happy to do it on my own and talk to my imaginary friends also so that was a very very I was a very strange child I think <laughs> but I was always busy never bored and in my in completely my own world okay and then but you got training at Bolton uh, theater school yeah when I finally went to university I did a performing arts degree and a contemporary dance degree I did a little bit of uh, work with well, a lot of musicians were coming to perform for us during our dance practice as well and there was a subject I did which was contemporary music processes and that subject introduced me to uh, John Cage and Steve Reich and, and all the great avant-garde artists and, and composers and from that degree I then went into directly to a one year which was an intensive acting training with John Bolton Mm. Yes, and that, that's a Lecoq training, which was a very much focused on physical theatre and there was a musical component and rhythm and body work, Feldenkrais, as well as straight acting improvisation. So it was very, um, very broad, but very physical, physical theatre-based work. Yeah. But let's for a moment stay... Uh in your childhood, how does the child Tanya Bosak cope with all this, you know, as you said, craziness like acting, <laughs> dancing? How, how explain? Do you remember? 
I really don't know. I I was I was quite a shy child, so I I find I still find it surprising that I wanted wanted to really pursue a career in acting. But I, I also think that sometimes we pursue things that we're most afraid of, or there there's a part of us that knows that there's something more to open up unconsciously, and then we always go for things that are going to push us to that place where we can really open up fully. So I was, I guess I was always taking risks and even as a young child, taking risks to, to dare to, to try things out. And, and that, that, that's never stopped, actually. I still do that now. I do things that scare me. Someone says, oh, can you do this? And inside I'm going, oh, maybe I couldn't do that. But I always say, yes, I'll do that. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a part of me that is always prepared to take on the challenge or risk moving forward and, and away from my comfort zone. And I never trained formally as a musician, and yet I found myself doing the most incredible jobs as a musical director without without all this training but it was because and actually that happened more after I did the Takatina teacher training that I was suddenly being asked to do a lot of musical directing work in community arts and in theatre because there was something else that I was delivering as a result of that training which had a, a deeper sense or a deeper way of working with people. Okay, let's go there a little bit later now. Uh, when we, because we want to hear from you, what is this Takatina teacher training? How did you experience <laughs> that and what is it about? But then uh, what I'm really interesting, I know that you have been teaching percussion at Bolton School also. So yeah. when, when did uh, actually acting and playing and composing uh, in this kind of very, I wouldn't say strange, but very unusual way, you know, not having a formal training in this. And you can still hear this in your music, by the way, which is a real compliment. <laughs> because There's a lot of experiment uh, really yes. out of the moment in it. And we'll hear some of that later. But uh, how did it go onwards from there with music? and, well, and Yeah, well, I think the pivotal shift was joining a group called Gong House. So at university, I met Neil McLaughlin, who, who is now Professor Neil McLaughlin, and he's a science, uh, chemical, physical scientist and incredible man who was also an instrument maker and a dancer, and he was a composer, but he was studying, doing his PhD in physics when I met him. And when I finished university, he had put together this group called Gong House, which was a community arts-based group it was dance music and all the instruments were handmade it was all modeled on a nine note scale Indonesian gamelan scale and a natural harmonic tuning system and it was a group that was really focused on delivering and sharing and exchanging music in a way that was interactive with audiences so it wasn't just performing to people. It was really giving people an opportunity to even play the instruments with us and play for us if we dance. So we had these game structures and performance structures, which was really about social engage engagement and, and connection to community. And that's with 
that was with elderly people, kids of all ages, as well as people with disabilities. So it was a really broad spectrum of working. So I was really going back to the roots of what music is for, which, you know, for centuries and centuries, when we think about why people come together and play music and connect and move together and synchronise together, this is exactly what Gong House as a mission was was focused on and, and Neil was very clear about that. So that group really changed everything for me and that was when I f- first played my um, my first drum, which was actually a PVC pipe, like a pipe, a plumbing pipe with a skin over the top. And I got very good at playing with my fingers, just improvising with my fingers. And, and then from there I... I developed an interest to learn conga and timbales and drum kit and so things developed from there. But really that was my first instrument, a handmade instrument in this um, within this group that was playing. It, it had a bit of a Steve Reich edge too, I, I, would, I would say. There were xylophones and metallophones and a lot of the dampening technique and I remember rehearsing every Tuesday night we would rehearse three or four hours and I would just go into trance it was the best best experience and introduction to firstly being in a band or a group and and also finding this other edge of how to be how to be in a zone Mm. and be playful and the dance element was fantastic too. So it kind of started to bring all those elements I was already training in into a new context of music as well. Here you go with Gong House. It doesn't get more crossing borders than here, you know, like interaction about the musicians, then turn it over to the audience and then dancing. Uh, was this based in Melbourne or where was the Gong House? Yes, in, in Melbourne. It was in the late 80s and that that group continued to work for at least eight or nine years. Yeah. Is there a similar project somewhere around? Or is this was this just this idea of this time and then it went Yeah, it, there's, there's nothing like Gong House that it, exists now although Neil has continued on with his through his work and his research and his instrument making he's developed a a a package of instruments which are natural tuning systems which uh, schools can purchase and they teach kids how to play these instruments so there is something that's going on in that context in uh, in the education system using this tuning system and his instruments that he's designed. But as far as this group, because we we went on to do some very interesting street theatre as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back in the day, in the 90s, street theatre was really booming in Australia and the world as well. And it wasn't you know, not at all like busking. It was really kind of high art on the street, which we're really missing these days. And there were so many interesting projects happening at that time. And so there were some interesting things that we were doing as a group theatrically also. But 
I think the the power of what that group was doing was really bringing music to community and music to education in a very inclusive way. And, and that was a very powerful component of that group. Okay, here you learned your first drum <laughs> pipe. Yeah. Then uh, you probably had the first ex real experiences with the zone, as you call it. Mm -hmm. Maybe you yeah. want to describe for our listeners what's the zone for you? It's a term that you know goes around and people think differently about it. What, what does the zone mean in the terms of music, especially in your experience with Gong House? In my experience, it was really entering a state of timelessness and suddenly two or three hours was just gone and I would have been playing the one thing for at least an hour and a half of that and we maybe shifted to something else. But it was just a flow and a very gentle grounding and, and also not just me personally, it was clearly collectively felt. So you could feel when we all clicked in because there were some very intricate, you, I know you're familiar with the gamelan tradition, so some of the intricacy of the interlocking parts with the gamelan and some of these figures were quite fast and we had to obviously rehearse for some time to get to a level where we're interlocking really clearly but when we did and locked in, it was like, wow, we just arrived and landed into this very grounded state as a collective. And interestingly, we would always, at the end of the session, we would lie down and rest. And, you know, it was, it was quite, quite a, a blissful experience as well. And quite a similar experience to what we have in Takatina at the end where yeah. you lay down. And so how did Takatina and you uh, really ask you to explain what this is and how it came into your life and at what point did it come in, this training? Well, I was, after my training at John Bolton, my teacher, John Bolton, he asked me to teach rhythm to the actors and my first response was, oh, what, what do you want me to do? And he just said, oh, just do what you do. And I thought, oh, okay. So this was another experimentation and another way of playing and working out what I might do. And so I began to teach rhythm in a very broad sense to actors through movement and the rhythm of character, the rhythm of performance, and, and also some very specific rhythmic exercises in circles and call and response, et cetera. And as I was doing this, it was fascinating to watch all the reactions and all of the issues or all of the underlying issues that were going on with the actors who would come up to me afterwards and be in a panic because I couldn't get something or it was, it was quite an eye-opener because I thought oh, I was just teaching rhythm and it was simple, it's this and this is how it goes. But there were so many really deep responses to what I was doing. And I didn't quite know how to handle that at that time, apart from telling them, you know, it was okay, we would rehearse it again and there's no problem. And it wasn't until 
that year I was given a flyer to your workshop. You came to Melbourne in 93 and somebody said, you should do this workshop. This could be of interest to you. And I thought, okay. So it ticked all these boxes for me because it was movement and rhythm and meditation and it seemed like something that was kind of new for me but also familiar and I was quite curious. I went along to your workshop and that was my very first experience of, wow, something magical is going on here that I don't actually understand and yet it's similar to what I'm doing but there was so much more depth and layers to what was going on and it was also a lot less verbal in the sense of explaining now do this now do this so it was not like a drumming class obviously or a class where you would learn in a linear way so I was completely fascinated but I have to say that within within one hour I was home I had landed somewhere that I just went I have to know this work I have to learn this work because I have in the past had many issues with anxiety and depression and an inability to keep physically still. And so I was always moving and that was manifesting in moving and busyness and keeping way too busy and burning myself out, but also manifesting and always being attracted to dance and moving. But I didn't know how to be still. And that was the attraction to Gong House too, because we were moving and playing and then we would experience this zone or stillness, this still point. And in Takatina, I felt it was just another doorway in, in, a, in the same direction, but way more advanced in a way that completely blew me away. So I waited and waited and waited until you did the first American English speaking training. I waited about five years. Okay. <laughs> now, let, let's also uh, uh, give our audience a little break and get them more curious. I have three tunes from you with the Barefoot Orchestra. So listen to some music you want. Which one do you want to put on now? The Rocket.
music and before we dance back to Takatina please mm -hmm. enlighten us a little bit about the rocket who is playing uh, obviously you've composed that and where are we with the rocket well this was composed as part of a theater show that I made which was based on my father's defection story from former Yugoslavia to Belgium in 1958. And so this particular tune featuring Kynan Robinson on trombone and my Barefoot Orchestra Band is about the moment my father was interrogated by the band leader because he was on the second tour from Yugoslavia to Belgium. He was a multi-instrumentalist in a folkloric ensemble. And the first tour, he went to Belgium the first time. And he was very curious that things looked very different there. He, he thought maybe he could try to find a way to stay. But they had spies within the, within the group. It was uh, communist Yugoslavia. They were really, really basically it was impossible to um, even speak to just one other person at a time was an issue. Like there, you would have to speak to at least three or four people at once. You couldn't collude with one other person so they were really watching what was going on in the ensemble and the three or four spies within the group they didn't know who they were so they were always being watched and 
So he went back to Yugoslavia and then the second time they were about to go on the next tour and because they saw my father speaking to some expats in, in Belgium, they were a bit suspicious of what he might be planning. So the band leader, he brought him in to chat to him and ask him. Inter it was actually an interrogation and a warning that we're not sure whether we should take you to this next tour because we saw you talking to this person and that person, etc. And so my dad, he was very good at lying and saying, hey, you know, I, I served on the Italian border. I could have I could have ran to the other side. He made up all these stories basically saying that he had no intention of defecting and he lied his way out of that one and was able to tour. But in fact, he did defect on that trip with two other men from the ensemble. Defect to Australia? To Belgium. So he became a, a, a political refugee in, in Belgium after he was in three months in hiding. And so he stayed there for three months. There was a train that was supposed to be leaving after their last tour and the, the three men didn't turn up. They basically escaped out of the hotel room and had arranged for somewhere to hide. And it was blasted all over the papers in Liège in Belgium that these three artists had deserted and the secret or the, the federal police, Yugoslavian police were looking looking for them. So they were in hiding for three months before they were granted political asylum and allowed to stay in Belgium. Well, this is an amazing story because I know that your current life took you back to Belgium, like as a yeah. center of gravity. How, how amazing is that? It is. So, and that, uh, piece came out of a theatrical play around your father's story, right? Yeah, and also because the way I write, it's also working, it's quite, kind of more filmic and more visual in the context of the performance. If you were to see visually what we do, the trombone player is in the, in the very forefront of the stage and all the musicians are in the background And you can, they basically creep forward and then stop. And then there's a space and they keep creeping forward and there's a space. So they get closer and closer and closer and closer to the trombonist who gets more agitated and trying to explain his way out of the situation. So there's a, there's a choreography that goes along with that, which tells the story non-verbally and, and without lyrics. It's amazing because... Uh, this story you just told makes a completely new dimension of the music I just heard because now I can see, it, you know, how they're coming up and now I get the yeah. story with the interrogation, yeah. So let's dance back to this time again where you got into this new Takatina training and how your life and your music life um, went on from this. Yeah, well, it really changed how I approached a lot of what I did. It changed how I how I performed, how I felt about performing. It asked of me the biggest question, which was why I do what I do as an artist. 
why I do music and why I teach and how I teach. So it really started to make me feel a lot more grounded and clearer about my purpose because I love teaching and I've always been a natural teacher since I was 18. That was very clear that I knew that I would be on a path to teach whatever that might be. That was very, very clear for me. Performance, being famous or being a star, maybe I felt like there were maybe two or three years where I could be bothered with that. But I think that Takatina really kind of grounded me in a way that made me less ambitious for things that didn't make sense anymore and gave me clarity for how I want to work with people. And it was ultimately about bringing joy or bringing learning in a, in a more in-depth way or telling the stories like I spent a lot of time, 15 years developing this show about my father. That was a big story. I'm not the sort of performer, a divisor or actor who needs to keep doing that. It was like I just needed to tell this story and that was very driven by a sense of deep purpose that is also, I feel, connected to my family purpose. Like I feel like I was chosen. I was the one who needed to tell that story and put that story out there for my family, for my family to heal, for me, for my father to see his story, for the people who came to that, to see that show, to have those connections to this migrant story, which is never ending, this loss of land or culture or loss of your homeland or leaving homeland, not feeling like you belong, all of these bigger themes that so many people around the world are constantly experiencing we also had this in our family. Like if I think about my identity and people say, well, do you feel Australian or Croatian? And I'm like, oh, I feel more European actually. And yet I feel a bit of both, but I, I'm a little bit displaced in fact. So it was like a, it was like a investigation into my identity as a Croatian Australian through my father's story. So it was a very powerful process. Now, look, you by now you are targeting a master teacher uh, yourself. How, how should, should I imagine listening to this podcast? What mm. is Takatina? Takatina is really a active form or rhythmic body somatic form of engaging with rhythm, engaging with yourself and ultimately going into states of deep rest and meditation, but through movement and through rhythm. But on top of that, there's the other layer for me, for Takatina, of there's a philosophy, there's a way of working with yourself through the body, with rhythm, with your voice, but asking the deeper questions, which are, what now? What next? Who am I? Why? Where? 
the bigger questions around how we can place ourselves on this planet. And there are so many facets of, of Takatina that are really fascinating because we can tangibly experiencing experience a lot of these philosophies or ideas like non-dualism or ex people talk about you know the I and the it and you can hear those lectures from certain philosophers or people who talk about this notion of what is the me and what is the I or what is the consciousness etc and yet in Takatina, you can tangibly touch all of these elements in, in very interesting ways through rhythm. So for me, it's a very grounding way to ask these questions, to explore these bigger life questions as well. Okay, so during the training, you started there in Portland, Oregon. Um, have you already been playing with the Barefoot Orchestra? Was this parallel happening? No, 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 no. I was, I was playing Latin jazz and swing and singing jazz and playing with Rectango, a band that I put together in Tasmania, and an event that I put together now is known as Rectango, the event, and. That music was also music that my father was playing in Belgium in bands. So that was an interesting unconscious layer also that kind of emerged. I had no idea that I, I would put a band together that was basically playing this very similar music to what my dad was playing when he was in Belgium. Okay. So to let it all sink in, <laughs> shall we play Pankovi or Noah? Yeah, Pankovi is a good one. Okay.
Right. <laughs> the pieces of the mosaic of Tanya Bosak really <laughs> become more and more apparent. It's amazing. Uh, what does Punkovi mean? The, the name. Oh, Punkovi. It's just like a. It's a bit of a, a, a Balkan twist on the world on the word punk. Really, Punkovi, like. Uh, um, yeah, it's just a, a play on words, but it, there's a bit of a punk element in that and it, it starts off as a very anthemic kind of representation of stability and homeland and country and you got to stay here and this is your country and this is your homeland and and then there's a little disturbance with those saxophones coming in and clarinets coming in which are really, really represent that point of decision that the three men made of breaking away from their homeland and saying, no, nah, we're out of here. We don't agree. We don't want to be here. And so there's that real contrast within, um, within that piece. So let's bring finally in one more facet out. You have co-founded a club, a real very, very well-known club, the open studio. Let us know a little bit about that. Yeah, well, this this place, open studio, has been established for 14 years, and I became involved eight years ago. I bought in, and there were two other women who established the venue, and it was always a dream of mine to actually have my own club or my own music venue, and I was already doing that with Rectango, but that was one night a week, and it wasn't really the what i imagined in terms of you know the club that i that i would like to have and a music venue was was kind of an exciting idea and sure enough it manifested and eight years later it's uh, although we've been closed for eight months it's still we've managed to reopen and begin the the, the venue again and it really is featuring incredible world music artists and jazz and funk and salsa and it's a real eclectic very community based again it's that community connection that warmth that it's not clicky or too fancy in the sense that um you know not just a few people are welcome everyone's welcome families old and young and and that's really important to me in anything I do, that that social engagement is really important. So that venue was already doing that and it just seemed like a, a natural progression to step into. Yeah, you, the longer we talk, the more it becomes really clear how social engagement, teaching, performing, uh, moving, acting, really in your life and in your work, it's very, very interconnected. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's not about, I think as soon as I, uh, something that, that I really got out of the Takatina process for me was asking those bigger questions of why am I doing this and what do I get out of it and what's important. And in the end, I realized, you know, what's important is having a great time with people, having connection with people, entertaining people, or, or going into a deep process with people, but that constant engagement and feedback is important. It's not important for me to be doing big shows or or Carnegie Hall or something like that. I, I don't even think about those things. I just 
any gig, whether it's large or small, and we did Monophoma, we did the big festival a few years ago, and that was really exciting, but I love performing in, in small venues also and having that more intimate experience with an audience. So it is, it's completely about really being present with people and seeing them and them seeing you and not being something special on stage. That's, that's, the, that's the big difference, I think, for me uh, compared to some other performers who, and that's not a criticism, I think it's fine if you want to be the star and you want to be above everything and just, you know, connect in a different way, that's totally fine. But for me, I think I'm more grassroots. I just really like to meet my audience. What would you, with all your wisdom we've heard, with all your sides of the world you have been exploring, what would you give an advice or a seed of wisdom to young people especially, or even young musicians in this time? What's the hope? What's the trajectory? What's the perspective? Yeah, I think it's really stay, staying absolutely true to what is important to yourself and to your community to can maintain connection with with yourself and your community is ultimately everything because you can't do anything on your own you need to engage and you need to be in a i guess ask yourself first why you do what you do as an artist and be prepared to be surprised that maybe if you're not being genuine with why you are entering the arts or being a musician or an artist, you're probably going to get frustrated and not be so happy. Mm. So I think, yeah, asking those bigger questions first and then really maintaining a connection with People you work with on all levels, no matter what they do for you also, is really important, whether they're producing you or they're serving you in some way or doing the sound. All those aspects are really important to continue to feel that they are part of your bigger picture also. And that creates a, a like a biofeedback loop that is healthy and happy and self-generating as opposed to being in a state of ego where I just want to be famous or I want to do this because I'm the best or you'll always end up hitting a wall, I think, <laughs> if you are entering the arts from that place. So check your ego. That's what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what I remember from what you just said is find your purpose be authentic, connect, and be ready for mistakes. That's a good, <laughs> yes. <very> good advice. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Tani, for your time you. and for your wisdom. Pleasure. And uh, so this was the episode uh, that crossed many borders, as you have seen, but in some way I really hope you felt how that all are connected and interconnected. Now, how can we find you on the web, my dear? Easily. 
tanyabosak.com. Okay, so please visit uh, this website, check her out. It's worthwhile, really. If you like my podcast, please go to powerofrhythm.com forward slash podcast. And if you like it, subscribe. You can also follow me on Facebook and Instagram. Many more episodes are already in the making. One more today with a famous journalist who has worked his whole life about groove. How to get in groove. So with that, stay tuned and I wish you great day.